this is cold war conversations if you're new here you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand cold war history accounts do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com denmark joined nato as a founding member in 1949 however it originally laid down limitations to its nato membership There were three conditions, no non-Danish bases, no nuclear warheads and no allied military activity on Danish territory, although joint exercises were permitted. Bo Hermansen served in a conscript reconnaissance platoon of the Danish Jutland Dragoon Regiment during the 1980s. His squadron was part of the divisional reconnaissance for the Danish Jutland Division, which was tasked to move into the north of West Germany, and link up with West German units to stop a Warsaw Pact advance into Jutland. Bo describes Denmark's political stance during this period, where the election of President Reagan in the US and his policies regarding defence caused some concern in Denmark and elsewhere in Europe. We hear of Bo's unit's tactics against the Warsaw Pact, the exercises he participated in, the rivalry between units and why a Danish tank was painted pink I'm delighted to welcome Bo Hermansen to our Cold War conversation. Denmark was um, geographically placed right adapt in the middle of the Baltic and basically uh, was able to be a stopgap for the Russian, especially the Navy's uh, ability to break out into the Atlantic Ocean. So so therefore, uh, Denmark had a, a very uh, important strategic or, uh, and also geographic position because we were actually uh, able to shut down the Soviet uh, Baltic fleet, because uh, if Denmark did what we were supposed to do, it's just stayed in harbor, it couldn't go out. So, um, And I think also think that the political situation in, in, uh, in Denmark, uh, especially in the 80s, um, uh, Denmark politically were, compared to especially the, uh, America and also a lot of European nations, we were, I would say, pretty left-wing, so to speak. Uh, there were a lot of people who, let's say, uh, didn't like NATO, didn't like uh, America. And in, in Denmark, there were particularly a, a movement that kind of were upset with the Americans that they elected Ronald Reagan as president. Uh, so that kind of became a a point of discussion uh, about how much Denmark should do and not do. We'll come on to uh, certainly a family discussion um, that you that you had about your yeah. your, your service in the in the in the <laughs> oh, Danish yeah. army. Oh, yeah. um, so, as far as the Danish military are concerned, there's the Danish army, the air force, the navy, and also the home guard is a fourth arm. Yeah, the Danish army. Yeah, well. actually, yeah, and and also another thing, we also had a quite large uh, civilian defense. Uh, I think, in order to get things into perspective, the population of of Denmark uh, were about five million people, and the the home guard uh, were quite large. I think something like when it was biggest, uh, seventy four thousand members, which is about one point five percent. And the civilian uh, defense uh, units were about something like, I think, over 100,000 people who would be able to provide uh, emergency hospitals, 
they would provide shelter and food uh, for people who were, let's say, displaced and stuff like that. Uh, all the way through the Cold War, there was a, a great will in Denmark to defend ourselves. Uh, but in the 80s, it, it, got a, it got a bit hinky with some people. Let's put it like that. The Danish army wasn't a solely professional army. The uh, Denmark operated conscription. Up until, I think, what, 2005 or something like that, the Danish army were basically a, a conscript army. Uh, we had some professionals, some units, uh, for example, tanks and uh, other special uh, areas were not conscripts. Those were only professional soldiers. But uh, basically, the main part of the army, and especially if Denmark ever went to war, the biggest part would be conscript uh, called up from reserve. And you were conscripted into the Danish army. Can you just explain how that conscription uh, system worked? Yeah, it's basically like a lottery. Uh, when you're 18, you're called to this uh, draft board and you pull a number out of the big lottery. And if you get a number below a certain number, I think around the time when I was uh, doing it, it was, it was maybe around 10,000. Um, so if you pull the number below that, you would be uh, called in. Also, if you had special skills, if you were, let's say, a mechanic, a car mechanic or a truck mechanic, you would be certainly, you, there was a greater chance that you would be pulled no matter, you would be drafted no matter uh, how low your number would be or how high, how high it would be. Also for the Navy, uh, they also took butchers and uh, bakers because they had to make sure that they ate well on their ships, stuff like that. Uh, I drew a very high number, I think uh, 34,000. So I was told uh, you're not going with that number. But you could also back uh, then. You could also volunteer. So uh, take your um, your national service voluntarily. That gave you the advantage that you could choose where you wanted to serve, uh, and that's what I did. I volunteered to be a conscript, and then I was able to choose uh, to serve at the Jutland Dragoons. Why the Jutland Dragoons? Why why did you choose them? <laughs> to be brutal honest. I just thought it sounded cool back then. I had absolutely, I was pretty clueless about being a real soldier. I just, I knew they had tanks and I, and I kind of hoped that I could maybe drive tanks. Uh, but basically, I just thought it sounded very cool. Uh, so that's basically why I, why I chose it. And that's a d decision I have never regretted. It does sound like a cool unit, the Dragoons. It does sound a bit 18th century, though, I think. Yeah, uh, we are. Dragoons are basically uh, infantry mounted on horses. That's how we were uh, back in the days. Uh, and nowadays, uh, or at least during the Cold War, the old cavalry regiments were the ones who most of them fielded most of the tank units uh, in Denmark and also a lot of the reconnaissance unit. Uh, but of course, other infantry regiments also had tank squadrons here and there. Um, we might get back to that when we talk about the Danish army, perhaps a little bit later, how they were organized and stuff like that. Sure. And um, wh what did your parents think about you volunteering? Uh, let's say uh, my dad thought it was a great idea. Uh, my mom was not so hooked on it uh, because I'm guessing what you're hinting at here is my mother was actually a part of the Danish peace movement. Like, all other countries in Europe back then, there was a huge left-wing peace movement. 
which has given uh, grounds for, let's say, a lot of family discussions uh, during the years because uh, here we have this um, this guy going into the military. Uh, his role back then would be going down to uh, to Germany and defending uh, down there. And in the meantime, his mother was a part of the peace movement who were kind of working against NATO uh, and actually kind of covertly working with the Soviet Union. So that has um, since then given, uh, given uh, time for lots of discussions in the family. Yeah, I can imagine um, the uh, discussions were probably quite lively. Is your mother a, a pacifist or was she against purely against the use of nuclear weapons? Uh, I think a combination. Uh, I think she's kind of one of those people who say that uh, kind of can we all just get along? And I also think that her involvement were also, she was probably more anti-American than she was anti-Danish. I had this strong feeling that she really, she really disliked Ronald Reagan. Uh, and so did a lot of other Danes, uh, actually, back then, especially some of the left-wing politicians. They kind of took it as a personal insult that the Americans actually dared to elect Ronald Reagan. Also, I think uh, another thing was also, this was also when Margaret Thatcher was prime minister in England. And I know that she really, really disliked her as well. So she just was pretty much left wing, that's for sure. And what was your role in the uh, Dragoons? The first day I started, uh, you know, when you arrive at the barracks, you're absolutely clueless to what's going to happen. So we were actually pulled aside by a couple of non-commissioned officers and said, go with that guy. Go over to the elite, he said. I remember that quite clearly. And then I was followed uh, from where the induction point to the barracks that we were supposed to stay in. And I asked uh, the other sergeant, excuse me, uh, what did he mean by that? And then he said, that means you'll go to the reconnaissance uh, in three months. And I was just thinking, reconnaissance, what the hell is that? And then I found, later I found out that we actually started in the 2nd Battalion, uh, the 2nd Armoured Battalion of the Jutland Dragoons, which is an armoured battalion. We started in their headquarter and support company and did our recruit training there. And after three months, we were actually transferred to a reconnaissance squadron that were professional guys um uh so and at the time they had made the decision that we would be the last conscripted uh, reconnaissance platoon by the dragoons after that they would turn over and use only professionals uh, in the reconnaissance squadrons and what did the professional guys think about i don't know you amateurs <laughs> turning up and being part <laughs> of yeah, the unit exactly yeah, exactly. We were we were blessed in my platoon because we had a brilliant platoon commander. Uh, I think he was number one at the officers' uh, school, uh, and we had some very good uh, uh, sergeants in our platoons. The Danish uh, army don't use the same system as you see in England, uh, where people slowly advance to the ranks and then they do junior brecken and senior brecken and so forth. In Denmark, you are selected after three months, you're selected to go to either sergeant school or military police school. And our sergeant uh, had started one year before us, got selected for sergeant school, went there and got back to the regiment and then they were ready for a new batch. And we had some very 
very good sergeants uh, in our platoon and kind of kind of made sure that in the beginning these professional guys were kind of apprehensive about these amateurs uh, so to speak uh, but I have been told later that as the time went on through our nine months of service in the squadron we kind of got this kind of um, we got the, the silent nod so to speak saying that Mm, even though for country they're doing pretty okay how was the training was it did you find it tough going um coming from a civilian background absolutely uh i was like i said totally clueless on what was going to happen i found it particularly hard especially all the physical stuff uh also it was kind of a kind of a of a, of a cultural shock uh back then in the 80s uh, the kind of way you talk to people were quite uh not so formal, but when you went in and became a recruit, suddenly things got very formal. Uh, I don't know if there's a distinction in the British language, but uh, like you say in German, uh, there's a distinction between if you're using the word see or do. Uh, I don't know if the British language has this uh, no, two different there isn't ways. There is a formal and informal. No, right. It's just you. Exactly. Exactly. But in the Danish army back then, it was normal to be informal in uh, just about every everywhere. But as a recruit, it was very formal. It was a kind of a cultural shock to be have to use this kind of kind of outdated language that uh, nobody used anymore. Uh, I found that hard, uh, the physical stuff. Uh, but now that I look back at it, I'm, I'm, I'm blessed because some of the lessons that I have applied in my civilian life ever since then, I learned as a recruit by the sergeants in our platoon because they were they were very good uh, indeed. How long did it take you to be trained and then be operational? What, how long was that period? The whole of mine, uh, I served for 12 months. The first three were recruit training, which were done in this uh, headquarter and support squadron. Um, and that was, you know, all the basic soldier stuff, physical stuff, uh, using the rifle. Uh, I think the only weapons we were trained on was the M72 light uh, anti-tank rocket uh, and also anti-tank mines and stuff like that. And a lot of NBC, first aid, uh, a lot of uh, aircraft and tank recognition and stuff like that. Um, and that takes about three months. And then you are sent on a, a an exercise that lasts uh, one week uh, where you walk a lot and do a lot of physical stuff. And kind of it's kind of an exam on what you have learned in those, those three months. And for our uh, purpose in my platoon, who were going to the reconnaissance squadron, after we were done, we, uh, when we came back to the barracks on the last day, I, I, I distinctly remember this is one of the proudest moments in my life. Uh, when our squad sergeant, uh, who later became my squad commander, when we were doing reconnaissance, uh, he was he was uh, called uh, his name was uh, Sergeant uh, Thompson, and he came to uh, after we were in the yard, and he kind of said at ease, and then he went to each of us, shook our hands, and said, "Congratulations, dragoon! Now you have graduated. Now you are dragoons." It was a very proud moment, and I will I will cherish it uh, until the day I die. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. 
I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. So that was the first three months. Then we got our normal uh, headgear back then was a black beret we had in the Danish army. And in the regiment, they had a bronze uh, beret badge. But the reconnaissance, they use a silver, uh, a silver badge. But you don't get that until you graduate from basic training. So we also got that and we got the squadron patch to uh, sew on to our uniforms and, and all that. And then we were part of the first reconnaissance squadron. Wow. No, I can, I can imagine that, that moment where your commanding officer shakes your hands and say, says you're now a dragoon is a proud moment after you've been through all that training. It was actually my squad sergeant, uh, the one who, who was a squad commander doing basic training. And he also, by my luck, became uh, the... Uh, the squad leader of the squad that I was in. And uh, just as a momentum, today he is the regimental RSM for the Jutland Dragoons. Wow. So he's still serving. Yeah, he is. He is. What was your equipment like? I mean, you you mentioned NBC training. So did you have a full NBC gear like the uh, British Army or the US Army? No, no, we didn't. Uh, one of the things that uh, we, we we found out later that uh, the Danish Army uh, NBC protection at the time I started was just the combat uniform and NBC mask and gloves. Uh, and that was supposed to protect us from chemical agents. Uh, the I think the last exercise that our squadron did before we were discharged, I think it was March 88, we actually got issued with naughty suits or NBC suits. Uh, I was not a part of that because I was sick at barracks at the time. I had the flu. Uh, but my buddies uh, said that they were running around in the uh, for the first time. And that was in 88. The Cold War was almost finished there. Um, so uh, the Danish army gear in general was... We had some stuff that were good, but a lot of stuff we had was... <clears throat> it was not quite there. Uh, a lot of our webbing stuff was from Second World War, basically. It was so old. Um, and, and webbing is perhaps not the best stuff to use because it has this bad thing that it, when it becomes wet, it kind of shrinks, which is uh, rather nasty. What was the composition of the Jutland Dragoons? Uh, the, the Dragoons uh, Regiment were the, were the primary armor regiment of the Danish Army at the time. Uh, they fielded uh, three armor battalions and one reconnaissance battalion, which were the uh, divisional reconnaissance uh, battalion for the whole Jutland division, which were the the main army uh, part that was going to Germany in case of war. Uh, we had the Leopard 1 tank uh, primarily, and then we had for infantry, we had M113 armor personnel carriers. 
Uh, but the, the interesting thing was that the Danish army back then were actually combined arms. Uh, you had uh, in each battalion of the Danish army, you had both tanks and armored infantry and all the support features that you need for a army unit. And you also had uh, old-fashioned, so to speak, motorized infantry, which back then in the Danish army were actually infantry mounted on Unimog, Mercedes Unimog trucks. So uh, the Danish army were quite unique back then because we were actually in peacetime organized as combined arms uh, or kind of like uh, kind of like battle groups. Um, uh, as far as I know, uh, none of the other NATO countries used that back then. So you're, you're in the 5th Battalion of the Jutland Dra- Dragoon Regiment. They're not using leopards, though. You've got a lighter tank there, haven't you? Yeah. The, back then, the reconnaissance, uh, uh, like I said, in case of war, in case of, of a uh, Soviet attack on Europe, uh, the Jutland uh, Division, which were an armored infantry division, would be deployed to the north of Germany, uh, around Lübeck, uh, somewhere around there, and was supposed to uh, kind of stop the, the Soviet Union going forward, which in our case would be mostly the Poles and uh, Polish, uh, I think, two armored and two armored infantry Polish divisions. Uh, and later on, it was backed up by Russian guards division and some east german units um, and we were the fifth battalion of the jutland dragoons were divisional reconnaissance uh, the jutland dragoon fielded the three maneuver brigades and each of those would have a a, a, a squadron deployed as their reconnaissance screen uh, and in uh, just to not go too deep into it a danish reconnaissance squadron is a kind of self-serving units. They have their own uh, supply and repair and headquarter platoon, uh, where they also had a, a medical section and everything. They're supposed to operate uh, alone behind enemy lines, basically. Uh, each squadron has three uh, reconnaissance platoon, and one reconnaissance platoon is made out of uh, two uh, scout groups mounted on Mercedes uh, 240 Jeeps, they have uh, two M41 light tanks, and they have one uh, M113 with an infantry squad, which uh, are called uh, armor shooters because they were originally thought out to be infantry protecting the tanks, so to speak. And then they also have a M113 mounted 81 millimeter mortar. So that's how a, 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 a reconnaissance platoon are organized. Uh, and just about the time when we were transferred to the, the squadron, they received the new updated M41s where they had taken the old American M41 tanks and basically give them a, a really a good overhaul, taking out the old gasoline engine, putting on a, a I think it was from a, a Bradley, an American Bradley engine, and they had given it new Israeli uh, fin-stabilized armor-piercing uh, ammunition and they had put in NBC uh, a system and uh, also a thermal uh, camera for night fighting. So at the time, it was actually the most sophisticated tank in the Danish army. Because the original ones were designed, I think, at the end of World War Two, so uh, they were quite an elderly yeah. design. I think it saw service in Korea, right? Yeah. In your infantry squad. Um, did you have uh, weapons like the Carl Gustav as well in there? 
a, a, a normal Danish infantry squ- squad uh, basically has, a, this is almost the same area where uh, we have the Heckland Koch G3 rifle, we had the MG3 uh, German-made light machine gun or general purpose machine gun, and we had the Carl Gustav, the Swedish uh, 84 millimeter anti-tank uh, recoilless rifle. And then uh, most squads, not the motorized infantry, but most other squads also had an American M2 heavy machine gun, which is a brilliant weapon if you let it be on the vehicle. Uh, hauling it around is, is no fun uh, and stuff like that. And then, of course, we also had M72 uh, light anti-tank rockets and armor mines and all the usual stuff that, that you would have. Uh, the scouts were... A little bit different. Each of these uh, Mercedes 240, they had a a gunner with a light machine gun, a, a general post machine gun. They had a driver, and then they have a, an observer. And I think uh, two of the cars in this, uh, each of the groups, had a Carl Gustav as well that they carried with them. What What did you think about your survivability if the war had war had started? Did you think about that? Yeah. Not back then, but I've since heard stories about that. Well, basically something to the, to the, uh, to the meaning of when a armored reconnaissance squadron drove out through the main gate, uh, nobody really expected to hear from them again. Um, so, and also when you look at the numbers back then, if you look at what kind of material, the numbers of tanks and everything that the Warsaw Pact had lined up against what we had. Uh, and I'm only, I think, just so that people know what we're talking about, I think uh, from the, about Hamburg and North were the Danes and the Germans' responsibility. There were the Jutland uh, Division and also uh, the Sixth German Mechanized uh, Division. And together with a couple of German local defense brigades, they were supposed to stop the northern gap and prevent the Soviet uh, forces from penetrating up into Jutland. Um, and when you look at the sheer numbers, it, let's just put it like this, then the odds were not in our favor. Yeah, yeah. Along with uh, quite a few uh, units that were uh, on, on, that, yeah, exactly. on that border. Um, so what, what were your tactics going to be? Was it, it to shoot and scoot so try and delay them pull back to another position and delay them what what, what were the tact mainly i think if i if i think back i think what we when we did our uh, after the three months where uh, of recruit training were done then we started to actually start to working together first as a squad and then as a platoon and there we learned all the classic uh, things about uh, area reconnaissance uh, road reconnaissance uh, and a few other bits and bobs. But the thing that we did, as far as I can remember, for about 90% of the time, were delay action. As you say, uh, uh, scoot and shoot or shoot and scoot. Uh, basically, wait until they're close, and then you hammer them with all you got, and then you pull back. And thus, you trade terrain for time. Because the the picture back then was that we had to delay the Soviet forces uh, penetrating up into Jutland for as long as British and American reinforcements could arrive in Denmark and kind of put the big plug in, so to speak. When I, I've, I have talked with, uh, with comrades who was armored infantry or 
who were motorized infantry, and I cannot believe how many foxholes they dug. In the armored reconnaissance, uh, digging foxholes was not one of the things that we did a lot of, uh, because we simply hadn't, we simply didn't have the time. So it was just, you know, prepare a hasty firing position, getting ready, and then, oops, there's the enemy, and then you hit them with everything you uh, you got, uh, and then um, you just pull out. There's one more thing that I've actually also I have to mention as well. We also did a little bit of um, kind of uh, like a bit of a hasty counterattack. Uh, if you have um, the enemy pulling up to you and you hit him very hard and you can see that they are hit, sometimes you can actually do a, and this is very small unit specific, specific. Let's say if you have uh, two Russian squads in position, sometimes uh, we would actually do a mounted attack where my squad would be mounted on our M113. We would have both tanks in position and they would be covering us together with the scouts on the flanks. And then we would do a mounted attack where we would drive straight up into them about five meters before we would stop, dismount and charge them. And of course, uh, by then, there should probably not be m uh, much left. Uh, I have never heard anybody else doing that as infantry or any kind of other positions. But I think it was because that the reconnaissance uh, platoon is so strong that you can actually cover one squad with two tanks. Um, I think that's also a thing that is quite unique about the, about the reconnaissance. So you must have done some major exercises in as far as you know practicing that that deployment can you take me through any of those yeah actually uh i was extremely lucky uh like i said uh serving in a reconnaissance squadron because uh we were told pretty early on that when we come to the autumn of 1987 which was the year i started we would go to germany on an exercise so we actually beside doing the normal exercises back in denmark where we did both squadron exercises in civilian uh, terrain and also we had in the southwest of Jutland uh, we have a big exercise area called Oxbull uh, where we did brigade uh, size exercises we also of course went there and uh, fought with some of the other Danish regiments but uh, the thing that really kind of sticks out when we're talking about exercises is this exercise where we took the whole squadron drove to the train yard in Holtebrook, which is the garrison town where the Dragoon Regiment are based, put all our vehicles on trains, and then drove to Germany. Uh, we drove to the town of uh, Neumünster in the north uh, of uh, in, in Schleswig. And there we took the vehicles off the train, and then we deployed out into, into the exercise area. Uh, the exercise was, was called uh, Brisk Frey 87, and was a, an exercise with uh, German, Danish, uh, English, or British uh, troops. Uh, and then we had, uh, I think it was almost 14, two weeks that we were down there. And then we ended the exercise with uh, driving up to, I think it was Egonforde, I think it was. Uh, and then we actually uh, got a, a ride home uh, on German Navy uh, landing craft. So they actually sailed us up to Denmark to... Uh, the island of Fyn, where we uh, disembarked on these uh, landing craft, and then we drove back to our our, our barracks. So, 
what was expected was going to be some sort of period of rising tension before war um where you would then yeah. move to your deployment positions exactly that was that was the plan in uh, at least what that's what they hoped for we call it in Denmark we call it the gray phase which is leading up to the war where the whole just about every military stuff in Jutland uh, and also Fyn uh, if you look at the map there uh, we have uh, Jutland Fyn and Sjælland but Sjælland was a was another story but the all the the Danish army units on or at least about what three thirds of them would deploy down to Germany as part of the Jutland division and there hopefully we would have time to get down there deploy go out and perhaps uh, dig in and do all the stuff to be prepared, so prepared that we can be uh, in case of if of an attack for, for the Warsaw Pact. Um, and also back in Denmark, of course, all the kind of lower echelon reserve units uh, would also be called up and would be deployed. And of course, the Home Guard would do in the gray phase. They had some units that would actually deploy because they had, for example, um, they should guard different kinds of key elements, for example, uh, mine depots and stuff like that. Now, the term Home Guard conjures up the image of the British comedy series Dad's Army about a platoon defending the British coast in 1940 when Nazi invasion threatened. What was the anticipated effectiveness of the Danish Home Guard? Uh, I think there's actually stuff for a whole other podcast just by the, talking about the Home Guard. But it's basically 74,000 people with arms. And back then, everybody had their weapon and ammunition in their own home. So a normal Home Guardsman would have a Heglancock G3 and 100 of live rounds at his home. And when he was called on duty, it would take him, what, an hour or maybe half an hour, depending on where he lived, and he would be out there in full combat gear with ammunition in his weapon and ready to go to war. Um, and no matter what you do, and there is also a, when you're talking about the Danish Home Guard in the 80s and also before that, there are a certain death's army aspect to it as well. That's for sure. Uh, oh, I got lots of stories about that. Um, but also the thing is, if you have 1.5% of the whole population who are under arms and who are, are out there and they have the local knowledge. They know their area like their own backyard. Um, and when you come as a invading force, having these 74,000 people running around almost everywhere would have been a absolute nightmare. That's for sure. Yes. And I think a similar degree of effectiveness for the uh, British Home Guard in the 1940s. I think uh, due to Dad's army, unfortunately, uh, that formation has been uh, unfairly maligned. Did you encounter any British troops on the exercises? No, no, uh, unfortunately not there on that exercise. I, I did later, uh, when I was uh, a bit later in life, um, but we had a lot to do with the Germans, um, but not, not the British, actually. I did hear that a couple of British lads were killed during the exercise, but I, I haven't been able to find any, any, any details on it. We had, in my platoon, we had an accident where one of our mortar, uh, M113, drove into a tree, uh, doing what, uh, 15 miles an hour or so. And actually, people got pretty hurt. Uh, I know the mortar gunner, 
he still, whenever the weather is about to change, uh, he still feels it uh, because he was standing at the back of the APC and when it basically came to an abrupt halt, he fell forward and crashed his skull into the into the rim of the mortar pit, so to speak. So he actually fractured uh, his skull. Uh, so that was that was quite intense, actually. Um, but he, luckily, he survived. How, how did you get on with the Germans? Because obviously, some history there, as with uh, us, us and the Germans <laughs> as well. But just interested to understand how the relations were there. Yeah, back then we absolutely liked the Germans. Absolutely, uh, we were a bit envious of them because they had such great gear. But there were no animosity whatsoever. Uh, I think uh, I think there were perhaps um, I don't I don't think there were as good soldiers as us, but I think you would probably always think that. So, but but basically there were no uh, there were no animosity whatsoever. Um, we were just good friends, basically. It was ancient history by then. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, I'm sure you've got some other stories there. Every veteran has stories. So, uh, Bo, what what have you got there for me? Yeah, Um, let's say we do have, uh, when I'm talking, uh, when I'm thinking about my whole service, uh, when I go back to the time just after we were finished with basic training and we were out doing the first, uh, I think we were just, you know, getting getting taught, uh, teached how to work at squad level. I did a, I did a really, a really stupid thing. Uh, We were out. Uh, getting taught h- how to fight from a fixed uh, dug-in position, and luckily, uh, at the same time, I was I started I started in April of '87. They also uh, drafted a whole mechanized infantry company, and uh, I think the week or so before we had to go out and do this, they had been out the whole company, and they had JBCs doing all their digging for them. So we kind of came out and kind of borrowed their positions. So we were doing all the stuff that we you do uh, when you make a a dug in uh, forty five position. Uh, I was out. Uh, you, for example, you do uh, barbed wire uh, at two hundred meters and four hundred meters, and in front of each row of three to one of uh, NATO barbed wire, you lay a whole line of anti armor mines. Uh, and I was uh, standing there uh, working with the barbed wire, and then I had my rifle uh, slung over my shoulder. And, and it was giving me trouble working with the barbed wire because NATO barbed wire can be really troublesome. I just, I just said with my rifle, okay, I'll just put it down on the ground here. So, and then the APC, our squad APC, the M113, came driving by uh, about, let's say, half a meter from me or so. And they were uh, chucking out the landmines from the back of it. That's how we, we lay landmines back then. Uh, and, but what I, Forgot, I forgot to pick up the rifle before the APC drove over it. So my rifle actually got run over by, by our, our squad uh, M113, uh, which is not good because uh, the Heckland Cock G3 is a very good rifle, sturdy and, and pretty reliable. But getting run over by a M113, mm, not so much. So kind of the, the frame was bent. And then uh, the guys in the APC, they drove up to our platoon commander because his background when he was a conscript sergeant was a, he was mechanized infantry. So he was the one actually doing, he was the teacher for my squad, the armor shooter uh, squad. And uh, he was standing there and then they said, um, 
Oh, I also had to add another thing. When you are a conscript in the Dragoons, you don't use surnames. You, of course, don't use uh, first name, of course. But in the Dragoons, you have a city name, which is also a very old tradition from back in the days when it was cavalry, where you came to a village, uh, said Vibor, and then you would take the guy called Vibor and put him up front because he had the local knowledge. Uh, this, of course, is not used anymore uh, as such, but the tradition of using city names are still in use by the, uh, by the regiment to this day. Uh, so, of course, I was from the, the city called uh, Brabant. Uh, so he, they drove up and said, we actually, uh, we, we drove over uh, uh, Brabant's uh, rifle. And then he just made this big puzzle and said, well, how about Brabant? Did you drive over him as well? And that kind of became platoon legend. Um, and actually, I was in big trouble because I was the moron who put my rifle down for a moment and then let the APC drive over it. But I think I got out of trouble because they said, mm, we'll make it out as it was the actually the M113 who did, who did the damage. So they kind of kind of sw- swept it under the rock, I think. So I, I didn't I didn't get punished. I just got a I just got a new rifle. I think I actually deserved maybe just a little bit of punishment because it was it was rather stupid. Hello, I'm Craig Donald from Aberdeen, and I support Cold War Conversations with a monthly donation because it marries interesting historical content with fantastic storytelling. Ian is a great gift as an interviewer. He knows his subject so that the conversations are meaningful but he also allows guests to tell their own story. Cold War Conversations is part of my weekly routine, and I would urge you to make it part of yours. Want to be like Craig and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War? As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free. You'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more or follow the link in the episode information. That That's interesting you talking about the city names there because you sent me a photo of your platoon, I think it was, and I was trying to find you on yeah. there and I was getting really confused because I couldn't see your, your last name on there. And that's obviously why, because I was, because I could see repeats of the same last name or what I thought was the last name. And I was thinking, this is a bit strange. And now it completely makes sense. Yeah, I, f- I forgot to mention that, of course. Uh, of course, our sergeants and platoon commander, they, of course, use their normal surnames. Uh, and also in the Danish army, as soon, as soon as you get a contract, when you're done with your conscription and start, uh, we don't, in the Danish army, we don't have, like I said, if you go to, if you want to become an NCO, you have to apply for sergeant school. Uh, if you don't do that, you just uh, kind of become a, what we in Denmark call it, a constable, if you translate it directly to English. But constable, we have them as constable and constable second grade and constable uh, first grade, I think. And it's basically just a name for a professional soldier. And these constable grades are actually more a pay grade, so to speak. But if you become a constable, you, of course, also use your surname. Uh, the city names is only for conscripts. We had one exercise I remember quite clearly where 
we were uh, thundering ahead out in the terrain and then we had to drive over this kind of narrow place and we were driving all hell bent for leather and we had one of the uh, scouts just behind us i think it was uh, the the in denmark a if you put in denmark if you put two squads together they become uh, a section as we call it in denmark so we had the section command of the scouts that's the guy who was in charge of all the scouts in the platoon. He was right behind us. So suddenly we were uh, driving like hell, and our vehicle commander saw that there were landmines uh, on cross of this small dike that we were driving on. And he called a halt. And then actually, without looking back that he is supposed to do, he just said, reverse, reverse, reverse. And uh, the AP, the driver, just put it in reverse and started to reverse. He failed to watch that the section commander was right behind in his Mercedes 240. And even though we were standing in the, in the hatch behind him and yelling and shouting, he, was, he had his crew helmet on, so he couldn't hear anything. So we actually just uh, kind of, you know, whacked into the, into the section commander's uh, uh, Mercedes 240. Uh, and then uh, the section commander's call sign is one on the radio net and our as the armor shooters are eight and uh, the platoon commander is called five in the danish army so you could hear on the radio and he, he called up and said uh, five this is one uh we've just been clobbered by eight and then you can hear what uh he was not impressed and i actually think that i'm pretty sure that our vehicle commander he actually got fined uh, and i think the driver of the section commander's jeep also got a fine because he was too close so um, that, that's also that later became a platoon legend. I can imagine, as you said earlier, your unit has quite a history, and in um, the British Army, there, there's quite a, or there used to be quite a lot of emphasis on on teaching recruits about the regimental history and how important the battle honours are and things like that. Was it was that part of the ethos of being in the? Um, the Jutland Dragoons? Yeah, it, there were. Um, not as much as, as recruits, so to speak. Uh, there were some telling about... Uh, there were a, a, a famous uh, Dragoon called... Uh, from the uh, 1864 war with Germany, uh, where he was... Uh, I think he was on one of the pictures I sent you, where he was called Niels Kelsen. And he was a Dragoon that during some of the skirmishes with German Hussars were cut off from his unit and he was one against 10 and they wanted him to surrender and he refused and he was pretty good at defending himself. So basically it ended up with one of the German officers went behind him and took out his pistol and killed him basically. He's been, of course, we were told about him. Uh, we were also told about in 1849 where the first uh, Schleswig war uh, between Germany uh, and Denmark and the one in 1864 is called the Second uh, War of Schleswig. And in the first uh, war in uh, 1849, what later became the Jordan Dragoons had a skirmish with the German Hussars, actually in my hometown of Aarhus, uh, where they just basically th just thrashed them, like, I don't know, they really kicked them, so they wouldn't believe it. Uh, stuff like that were, of course, uh, talked a lot about, but also... And, uh, there were back then in the Danish army a kind of a, what do you call it, a reconnaissance spirit or something like that. Uh, for example, uh, when we went to Germany during British Frey, 
my platoon didn't have any tank crews because back then tank crews uh, were professional soldiers. So in order to our platoon to function uh, like a normal reconnaissance squadron, we actually borrowed two tank crews from the uh, the guys over at Bornholm. Uh, Bornholm is this very little Danish uh, island out in the middle of the Baltic, south of Sweden, actually. And they had, uh, of course, their own kind of brigade size uh, defensive unit. And among them, they also had a reconnaissance squadron. So we borrowed um, some of these um, uh, guys, and they were we really enjoyed them. Back then, we referred to the guys from from uh, Bonholm's uh, van as the Herring Militia, because uh, Bonholm was very uh, very well known for their smoked herring. So we kind of you know like kind of joked a little bit and called them the Herring Militia. We had we had some fun with that. But these guys, they were really good at camouflaging their tanks. Normally, when we were doing exercises in civilian uh, territory or ter- civilian terrain, we would basically you know try and find a small patch of uh, spruce trees and then cut down what we needed and then we would camouflage the, uh, our vehicles with it. These uh, guys from uh, Bonholm, they actually pulled up to a private German house, went inside with a chainsaw and cut down one of, the, one of the spruce trees and camouflaged the tank in no time. And I remember our, plat- our platoon leader's driver, uh, he, he, he said that me and the platoon leader, we were just sitting there with open mouths and just looking at them because going into people's homes back then were, were, were into people's private areas, so to speak, or people's private gardens. That was a kind of a no-no. So uh, it's also become platoon legend that the the, the guys from uh, Van Holm they were they were they were pretty uh, in, uh, pretty adept into camouflaging their vehicles. Later on, uh, up into the 90s, when, uh, when the, uh, the reconnaissance unit traded out the M41s and got uh, Leopard 1 tanks in the reconnaissance as well, uh, they got them directly refurbished from Germany. And a lot of them were kind of, uh, the surface was pretty slick. So one day, uh, one of the, it, this is a story from uh, one of the sergeants in my platoon who later became a tanker. He had one of these guys who fell off the tank and broke his arm, I think. So they said, uh, maybe we should repaint them and maybe throw on some sand um, in order so uh, kind of a anti-slip surface. Uh, and while they were doing that, they were thinking, wouldn't it look cool if we kind of overpainted the green? Because Danish, uh, all Danish vehicles were painted a bit like the British Army. A olive green kind of color and black, basically very close to the British Army. So they said, um, wouldn't this be nice if we painted over uh, the green so the tank is completely black? Uh, because they had an idea that this was actually work better when it was out in the field. Uh, and as said, uh, so was done. Uh, and the day after, when the squadron commander came by, he was furious and he was scolding them and giving them hell because in Denmark, it's kind of, you have to abide by the rules. You have to follow the instruction manual and all kinds of stuff like that. And he was very upset about this. So he said to them, and this was, I think it was a Friday morning, actually, where he uh, he scolded them and said, from Monday, nobody is painting any tanks in this squadron. And they, of course, said yes. And then he went away. And after he was gone, they said, well, he did actually say Monday. So maybe we should just paint the other tanks in in the squadron right away. Um, so they did. 
And uh, on Monday, when the squadron commander came back, the first thing he, he did was he ran into the battalion uh, commander. And the battalion commander said, oh, I just seen your tanks. Damn, that looks cool. They are really awesome. And then suddenly it was a very good idea that they started to paint the uh, tanks black. And actually, from what we hear is it works very well. When the tank is, especially in the Danish terrain and the terrain in north of Germany where we were supposed to fight, a black painted tank, especially in the evening and the morning, if it's uh, behind, uh, if it got a good background, it will totally disappear. Uh, and people would say, isn't that cheating? No, it's reconnaissance. Yeah, I guess, yeah, if you're in shadow and stuff like that. When I saw it, the, the, the first time I saw it was a reunion day at the, at the barrack, and I was thinking, why the hell did they paint it black? And then uh, uh, his name was um, the sergeant in question. I think there's, there's no trouble in mentioning him. He, his name was uh, Søren uh, Dürby. And he was also a, a scout and a tanker from uh, the Will of God. And he was very good. And he said to me that it works really well when we are out, especially in the evening and the morning. The tank just about disappears. Uh, another one, but this is not actually from my unit, but the uh, uh, people we talked about from Bonholm, they also had a very a light tank squadron back uh, then equipped with M41 tanks. And the present, uh, no, I think he was recently uh, the commander of the Royal Guard. Uh, he was, back in the days, he was a, I think he started out as a tank platoon commander, and then he became, he became 2IC of the tank squadron. And this was around 19, late 1970s, uh, 1980. And before that, all Danish vehicles were just painted green, just this military green. And then around 1980 came an instruction uh, to paint them green and black, just like we see on British Army vehicles from back, from back then. And he said, he, uh, he also told that in this tank squadron uh, on Bornholm, there were the kind of the same spirit, very high-spirited, uh, very professional people who really know what they're doing. And he had a talk with some of the senior sergeants, and of course his 2IC and all that, in the in uh, in the squadron about how they should paint these uh, tanks, and they had a lot of good ideas. But he said, uh, as a, uh, I think he was he had moved from two IC to to uh, squadron OC at this time. He said, I I hear what you're saying. They're good ideas, but and as far as I'm concerned, you could paint them pink. But for now, we'll just paint them according to army regulations. Uh, and that was done, of course. And then about a year and maybe two years later, he was relieved of command because he had to go to staff school. And on his last day in the squadron, he, it was a tradition that you would picked up, uh, would be picked up at your own home by somebody from the squadron and driven to the squadron area where you would have, you know, breakfast uh, and you would have some kind of celebration and a small change of command parade and stuff like that. But of course, he was picked up at his home by an M40 tank, M41 tank that was painted pink. I have a picture of it. It's not the best paint job, but it's pink. Brilliant. So I, I, I think that's also in the kind of kind of spirit that we are talking about here, which I, which I think is very funny. So I will see if I can find the picture and and uh, and put it up on your on the facebook page yeah and i i'll include that in the uh, episode notes as as well um now in in a lot of armies you've got rivalry between different units 
I'm I'm thinking that there must be the same um, in the Danish army with you know the dragoons and I don't know some of your 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 other units that have quite a history. Exactly, uh, in the Danish army, it's basically even inside the platoon, especially maybe it. I think most uh, most units have this. In, in our platoon, we would uh, we would pick on the mortars and the scouts would pick on us. But in, if anybody from the outside would would hassle any of our guys, then suddenly we would come we would become one unit. Uh, we would also hassle the guys from the mechanized infantry company, and they would hassle us. And of course, when you go out and look at regimental um, uh, units, then of course there could be really bad blood. In the town of Vibor, which is kind of close to Holstebro, where I was stationed, there were an infantry regiment called the Prince Life Regiment. It was a normal infantry regiment which uh, fielded, uh, I think back then they had, uh, they fielded at least two armored infantry battalions. And I know that on exercises um, in the late 70s and 80s, they were actually fist fights and they were actually scenarios where people who got taken prisoner were actually uh, subjected to different kinds of what you if you did it today you'll probably go into jail there were some things something getting close to water torture and stuff like that there there, there were some really unpleasant things going on back then Uh, by the time i was in the army this has kind of succeeded maybe some wise people had said to them cut it out but of course, there was still the kind of harmless bantering. Everybody in Denmark, uh, everybody in the army in Denmark, they they kind of hassled the lifeguard because um, the lifeguard they spent out of their twelve month, they spent four months doing ceremonial duties, meaning, in our opinion, that they are not as good soldiers as we are because they spent so much time polishing boots and uh, brass and all kinds of stuff. Um, and also, uh, for example, uh, the the regiment I talked about earlier, the Prince Life Regiment, their beret badge is a wild boar. So we teach them about that, calling them the Pig Central and whatever, and they would call us dinos. And dinos is short for dinosaurs, meaning dinosaurs has too much armor, too little brain. So, and but all that stuff were pretty harmless and. And, and, and all in good spirit and fun. Um, uh, stuff like that was going on. But I, but I haven't really, I haven't met any kind of serious animosity. Uh, and I also, I must admit, later on in life, I actually gotten to know uh, quite a few who were in the lifeguard. And, and I must admit, the way they are taught and the way they do things kind of makes sense in order to what they're doing later on. Um, maybe that's material for, for another podcast. I don't know. Um, they're, they're really motivated. The lifeguard people are, guys are really motivated because they just get, they have to stand together because they get so much crap and so much from their officers and their NCOs. So it's kind of a forging effect that they have. So I kind of not admire them, but I think that they're, they're okay. And the lifeguards is like, uh, are they sort of like guarding the, the Royal Palace in Copenhagen and stuff like that? Is that part of their role? 
Yeah, um, it's just like the guards division in the UK, where they take care of the queen, stand on on guarding her castle and stuff like that. And it also meant that there were some type of units that the lifeguard did not uh, did not make because there was some type uh, of I can't remember. I'm not sure. Um, there was some some of the units they did not have the time to train properly because you cannot train uh, people in certain roles if you only have eight months of service. Uh, but then in the other hand, uh, I think, for example, um, Denmark used to, in the 50s and 60s, we used to have this American uh, caliber 50 quad gun mounts that were used during the Second World War and was basically phased out all around in the Danish army. But the lifeguard, they were still... Uh, they were still making platoons uh, or anti-aircraft sections in their headquarters and support companies back then in in the 80s. Uh, and I have recently found out why, because some of the very low-prioritized reserve battalions, they had um, there were a, an, a civilian airport on Sjælland, uh, and one of their uh, jobs was to guard that. And using... Uh, Mercedes trucks with one of these uh, quad caliber 50 on the back is a very good way of defending a airport from let's say helicopters there's actually one more thing that I actually would, would like to, to touch the first squadron uh, reconnaissance squadron that I was a, a part of um, in a reconnaissance squadron there is also a kind of performance culture you really have to perform and I think uh, the squadron that I was in was blessed. We had the most amazing squadron commander, Major Grünberger. Uh, we had some very good uh, platoon commanders beside my platoon commander. The other two, I, one of them, uh, which he is now Brigadier Lüne, and he is the second in command of the whole Danish army. So he also kind of went far. Uh, he, for example... At one time, I think it was, I can't remember when, I think it was in late autumn of uh, 87, he actually planned a patrolling exercise where you simulate that you are behind enemy lines, you have lost your vehicles, you're on foot, and you're doing basically, well, escape and survival, and also doing combat jobs. He planned that for the whole squadron, everybody in the squadron. It was only him and two other guys that were his helpers who were not apart. So the evening that we left barracks, I saw our squadron commander, our 2IC, and our operations officer in the squadron, everybody in combat uniforms, backpacks, their own weapon, uh, woolly uh, hats, camouflage cream, mounting the trucks, being driven out to where we, the exercise was supposed to start. And I think that is, in the, in the Danish army, my, my recollection, that kind of two kind of officers they are the ones who say, go that way, forward, um, and attack. And then there are the other kind, which we had most of in my squadron, if not all, who said, follow me. Kind of, it's, it's a picture of the whole thing, but because if a reconnaissance squadron commander go out and say, follow me, something is wrong. But kind of this exercise where he, the squadron commander came up with his 2IC, his operations officer, and... Everybody, also the one sitting at behind the desk every day, everybody was out, cam cream, weapons, and backpack. And then we, I think it took a whole week where we 
uh, we we walked a lot and we did uh, patrolling and ambushes and stuff like that. And then the exercise culminated that we went to Aalborg, where the where the uh, the Danish special forces, the Jaeger Corps, are based, and they have this kind of training tower where you can practice uh, jumping in parachute. So we got the kind of the reward of uh, doing a jump from 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 their tower. And this is just one of the things that, that I'll never forget. This whole trip uh, with everything that we did, it was it was a great experience, uh, and especially this kind of command lesson that there is here with the squadron commander and all these people is out there with the guys as well. Yeah. So that was a that was a brilliant yeah. thing. Was that your only escape and evasion training that you had? Yeah. Besides that, we didn't have anything. Uh, normal SEER training, we didn't do that. Uh, we were, of course, told what was expected from us. Uh, if you were captured, only name, name, rank, and number, and that was it. Uh, but this was this was pretty close. We also, when we were operating, I think basically the whole squadron was actually turned uh, on the head, and everybody was organized into small four-man patrols, uh, and. I think uh, I was like in the armor shooters, so I was put on the crew with one of the scout cars and worked with them during the whole session. And we also, during this exercise, we also had a Honda Force out there. Uh, I think it was the headquarter and support company from the first battalion that were out there hunting us. Uh, so, and we also had a, lo a lot of the stuff we did was against the home guard. And they are pretty amazing to fight against because they are everywhere. You cannot move, and there they are because they have the local knowledge. So it was a very good exercise, and uh, uh, so we kind of sometimes we felt the pressure, so to speak. I've come across other units, like some of the U.S. tank units don't appear to have been tra trained in escape and evasion. Uh, some British tank units were. Um, but uh, interesting to hear your experiences there. Um, as far as I can figure out, uh, when you go into the professional part of the army, all the tank squadrons and, uh, for example, a lot of the uh, staff and headquarter support companies, um, they are, were back then also professional soldiers. And for them, it was kind of normal that about every two years, every three years, their unit would do would make such a Basically, and they, it is basically an escape innovation exercise where they would be out, no vehicles, on foot, getting hunted, and just what they could carry on their backs. Um, the conscript uh, units, uh, not all of them. I think a few of them got this experience, but not all of them. I have one more thing, if we have time for it. Um, uh, I've written here what we thought we knew and what actually was actually was true. Uh, one of the more sombering things was that, for example, we were told when they upgraded the Danish M41, uh, we were told that we bought this new uh, armor-piercing uh, discarding Sabbath fin-stabilized round for uh, its 76-millimeter uh, gun, and we were told back then that it was able to penetrate all known Warsaw Pact armor. And that's one of the things that we said, wow, that's impressive. So you'll just shoot everything the Russians have to hell. Um, for example, at the time, most of the Polish units that we were supposed to fight against, most of them had T-55, which is an old tank. Uh, a few of them had T-72. 
the Russian Guards Armor Division that we were supposed to, it was the 94th, I think it was called, they had, for example, the T-80. Um, after the Cold War, it was actually figured out that there were, uh, the Danish uh, Army Intelligence, they got their hands on a export version of the T-72. And they did some test firing with the Leopard 1, the 105mm, doing with the, with the finest or the, the hardest hitting round they have, which is also an armor-piercing, uh, fin-stabilized, discarding sabot round. And actually, they were not able to penetrate the front part of the turret on the T-72, which is kind of, kind of that would have been a very nasty surprise back then. I think... Uh, of course, they then found out that as long as they just uh, aim low, then the round can hit the T-72 at the front, go all the way through the tank and f- through the engine and out the back. But the front part of the turret, they cannot penetrate that, which also is kind of... We were taught to shoot with our Carl Gustavs um, straight at them at the front, which I'm pretty sure would have very little effect. Uh, so that they, they are kind of things that we figured out later on. Um, for example, the attack plans on Denmark, we were told that I think Denmark was supposed to have something up until about 100 small tactical nukes and two big nukes. It's one of the things where you think, well, if they did that, then the, then the battle would be over pretty quick. But I myself very much doubt that they would uh, use nuclear weapons uh, because then it was just it would just very quickly go into a tit for tat thing, and then we would basically have a nuclear holocaust. Uh, and I think also the stuff about uh, NBC equipment that we basically up until '88 just had our uniforms. And as far as I know, the 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 agents that the Russians were or the Soviets were using would penetrate uh, through clothes and through the skin. So it, it wouldn't really do us much good. Uh, and this is one of the things that I think could really be a problem. I would like to dedicate this podcast to my platoon. I am very proud to have served with you. And of course, to everybody who ever served in the first reconnaissance squadron. Thank you very much. Don't miss the episode extras such as videos, photos and other content. Just look for the link in the podcast information. The podcast wouldn't exist without the generous support of our financial supporters, and I'd like to thank one and all of them for keeping the podcast on the road. The Cold War Conversation continues in our Facebook discussion group. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thanks very much for listening, and see you next week. Not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster, and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. 
Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.